When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to a Talking Tactics special. Hosted by me, Carl Anker, with Half Hope and Daniel Tullock. The World Cup is the biggest single sporting competition on our planet. Every four years, billions of people gather around televisions and watch nations of the world play what Pele dubbed the beautiful game. And the World Cup final is a sports pinnacle. On two occasions, Zinedine Zidane played in the World Cup final. In the first, he headed France to victory and himself to superstardom. In the second, he headed France to defeat and himself to infamy. This Talking Tactics special tells the story of a man both flawed and genius, both sinner and saint. It's the story of Zinedine Zidane and the World Cup. There's been an incident here. I think it's Zidane, Mark. I think a head may have gone in there. The referee has gone across now with his hand in his pocket. He's been told about it. It's off. It's red. It's Zidane. The assistant referee, whether the fourth official saw something because of the delay, Dominic is sarcastically applauding the referee, belatedly, the man who sent off Wayne Rooney, is about to send off Zinedine Zidane. This is the incident. Matarazzi had an arm round Zidane there. Then they looked at each other. Well, I think words were obviously said, weren't they? Matarazzi said something. There it is. You can't excuse that. Zidane's career ends in disgrace. And Zidane goes. France will play the remainder with ten men. Well, the World Cup final explodes in the second period of extra time and Arazio Elizondo of Argentina dismisses Zidane Zidane It was maybe the most shocking end to a career football had witnessed. Zinedine Zidane, in his last ever match, was red-carded after headbutting Italian defender Marco Materazzi. Arguably the greatest player of his generation, and arguably the greatest midfielder of all time, left the sport in disgrace and left his nation a man sure as France and Italy went to penalties. One man who will not be taking a penalty is Zinedine Zidane after a moment of complete madness. Très fou, I think they say in French. We've seen it all now. It doesn't matter what Matarazzi said or what Matarazzi did. Zidane is absolutely stupid. One of the greatest players the world has ever seen. All right, there's a bit of hold in there. There's a few words. He's, sm- he's actually smiling at Matarazzi. He goes past him. He said something there, and then he just turned and absolutely crazy. Well, that's hideous. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. for whatever Zidane has done great in the game, if. France don't win this game tonight. I'm afraid all that might be forgotten. And that is the image that people will remember of Zinedine Zidane. I mean, what is he doing? That is absolutely outrageous. He's, he's, he's lost his marbles there. That's, that's just crazy. Without their captain, France were rudderless. The Italians dispatched all five of their penalties and won the 2006 World Cup. Grosso, who scored that magnificent... 
magnificent goal in the semi-final against Germany has the opportunity to win the World Cup for Italy. They won it, but the 2006 World Cup final wasn't really about Italy winning. It was about how France lost, specifically how and why their star player lost his head. How could football's most elegant player be that rash? Even stranger, why did French people forgive him so quickly? His actions were incredibly selfish and ruined their chances of winning the World Cup, but he was given a reprieve. One suspects the answer lies in Zidane's past, namely his contribution to France winning their first World Cup in 1998. France hosted their first World Cup in 1938. 60 years later, in 1998, the French hosted the competition for a second time. Le Bleu beat South Africa, Saudi Arabia and Denmark in the group stage. Then came Paraguay, Italy and Croatia in the knockout rounds. In the final, France were pitted against the vaunted Brazil. A talent-laden squad with the likes of Cafu, Roberto Carlos, Rivaldo and a 21-year-old phenomenon named Ronaldo. France were the underdogs the home side took control of the 1998 World Cup final, powered by a vibrant Stade France crowd. Zidane, 26 at the time, was playing professionally for Juventus. The Marseille-born midfielder was Francis Talisman, and in the first half of the 1998 World Cup final, he somehow found space in the box on two corner kicks. In the 27th minute. Well, Desai's up for this. Leboeuf's up for this. Zidane's in there as well. It's there! And it's Zidane! 1-0 France! The man you would not expect to score a headed goal. He's got great feet. He's got tremendous ability on the deck. He's not renowned for his heading ability, but he gets an absolute free header from about four yards. Dreadful marking. Great heading. Zidane's first goal of the World Cup and it puts France 1-0 ahead. No chance for Taparel there. They say once is an accident, but twice is a pattern. Almost 20 minutes later. Oh, he's done it again. Zidane makes it 2-0. Where was that Brazilian marking? once on a corner and now beaten twice on a corner and both by Zidane and right into injury time at the end of the first half Zinedine Zidane makes it 2-0 it's football intelligence brought to bear, isn't it? A goal, the goals that he scored. I mean, first of all, like it's terrible defending for both goals. He scored exactly the same goal twice in a World Cup final. It's, it's ridiculous. Like at least the second time, pick him up. You know, the voice of Paul Ansorge, football writer, psychotherapist, and co-host of the United Rant podcast. 
who was also half French. But it is, it's football intelligence. It's it's not about the technique of the headers, although they're both decent, but just being in the place where you know the ball's going to go and where there's not going to be a defender, that's kind of very Zidane, isn't it? Even if, you know, he's not doing a Cruyff turn or Zidane pirouette and blasting the ball into top corner. In the second half, despite two Marcel Desailly yellow cards, the 10 men of France held on to their lead, no doubt inspired by their 12th man. And in the finals, 93rd minute, Manuel Petit sealed their victory and France's first World Cup. Vieira playing it in again for Petit. And it's another one. It's 3-0. And France are the new world champions. And abroad the smile there from Manu Petit. And the look there of Cafu says everything about Brazil tonight. Tremendous goal. They really didn't want to go forward at first, but they were forced to by Brazil's lack of urgency to get back. What a great finish from Petit. It's over, and France are the world champions. Brazil, in not too many words, are being humiliated. They've shown neither spirit nor their usual skill. Two terrific goals from headers by Zidane in the first half, and then capped off by that excellent last goal from Manu Petit. France defeated Brazil 3-0. The hero and star of the night was Zinedine Zidane. While French captain Didier Deschamps was lifting the World Cup trophy in the Stade de France, People in Paris and around the nation were euphoric. It was estimated that over one million people spilled onto the streets of Paris to celebrate their nation's victory. My favourite Zidane moment is the image of his face being projected onto the Arc de Triomphe three years after the National Front had got what was then their highest ever share of the vote, uh, with French flags everywhere, with people chanting, Zizou pour président, Zizou pour président. It was a short-lived moment of national togetherness and national euphoria. That's Dr. John Marks, professor in French and Francophone studies at the University of Nottingham. He's also a West Bromwich album supporter. Dr. Marks continues. The key thing that everybody remembers was people on the Champs-Élysées shouting Zizou Président. You know, that was Zidane undoubtedly was, uh, to use the proverbial phrase, the poster boy. He was the one who so much of the focus was on because he was the star member of the team. The 1998 World Cup, you know, it meant such a lot at the time as a kind of young idealist um, who'd grown up in left-wing households to see a French Algerian man become an idol of his nation. What made Zidane such an idol was he, alongside his international teammates, were representative of what some in France had hoped their country would become, a multicultural melting pot. The notion of a black, blanc, boar France, where black, white and Arab people lived in some form of harmony, was a fantasy to some. But Le Bleu showed, at least in some way, that France were capable of such togetherness. And this is the really interesting thing about football in France, very, very distinct from football in Britain. We don't look at football, and we particularly don't look at national football and see some profound national significance in it. So what I think French people were seeing there was a confident France, a, a new France. Dr. Marx continues on the idea of black, blanc, beurre. That phrase, black, blanc, beurre, is quite important as well. Contained within that phrase, the fact that you've got these three separate identities or whatever you want to call them, in some way, perhaps unconsciously, perhaps consciously, was expressing, you know, maybe it's possible for there to be a multicultural France. But the idea of a multicultural society for France is, is problematic, not just for people on the right, 
but it's generally problematic in terms of the idea of a, a universal republic, that people can be unified and yet still kind of exist within distinct groups and still claim kind of separate sub-identities was a new idea for France. While the footballers themselves were advertisements for this idea, so was the style of football they played. And that style didn't go unnoticed when watching a play like Zidane, especially from the vantage point of Algerians. Zidane for me is probably my favorite ever player. And I think that goes for, for a lot of football fans, not just for me as, as an Algerian. Mahir Mazani is an Algerian football journalist based in Algiers who covers North African football. And he recounts his first encounter with Zinedine Zidane. My, my first memory of football actually had to do with Zidane. I remember I was, I was seven years old when World Cup uh, 1998 was, was happening in France. And my parents, who are both Algerian, they pulled me into the living room and they said, Mahar, look, uh, number 10 over there, he's Algerian. And I had to sit down and watch it. I think it was France against Croatia. And I, I watched the match with them uh, just because it was in Dinzidan. So it was basically through him that I was introduced to the World Cup and football in general. Mahir detailing how colonialism influenced Algerian football. In, in North Africa, which is a region called the Maghreb, which that'll span uh, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, you're going to be looking at small technical attacking midfielders, very mercurial, and, and probably have a short temper, not a great mentality. Zindin Zidane is, is very Algerian in his way of playing football. And a lot of people will trace the origin of, of that technical style to colonialism. The indigenous population were, were usually living in casbahs in around North Africa. For people that wouldn't know, it's a, an old Turkish citadel where the streets are so narrow that even till today, uh, no cars can pass through. It's really tight. It's almost vertical because it's on a hill mostly as there are citadels and their fortresses. And that's where the indigenous populations were mostly living, either there or in rural areas. As the game was being imported into the city, because they were forced to play in those tight spaces, it became a norm here to sort of play technical football. Tight spaces always breeds that technical style, and that's why futsal is always preferred to to a regular, you know, 11 aside when you're trying to develop technical skill. More interesting than the history of football in Algeria is how being from the Marseille suburbs seemed to extract elements of that history from Zidane's boots. Mahir explains. The ethnicity does play a part in how Zidane's sort of style was formed because he is Algerian, but really... Technique and skill is not really transmitted through through genes or heritage. I think it's more a product of, of the of the environment, of nurture. On one hand, okay, maybe as an Algerian, as somebody that's being raised by Algerians and surrounded by Algerians in the Marseille suburb, uh, he might have an appreciation for skill or technique or nutmeg. But at the same time, being from the suburbs maybe affected him more than being Algerian. And if you ask him where he learned to play his football, he'll tell you the same thing that Samir Nasri told uh, journalists. He learned to play football in, in La Cité, in, in the suburb, the Marseille suburbs. Mihir continues on how French cities like Paris and Marseille arrange their populace and how it affects their football. French cities are sort of the inverse of American cities, where in American cities, maybe the inner city is, is the neglected part and the suburbs is, suburbia is sort of the, the more high income part of society. And French is the opposite. The inner city is is high class and, and the suburbs are where they, you know, where you find many immigrants and you find high crime and poor education systems, etc. But there as well, that's where they play the, the best football and the most technical and skilled football. Even a player like Frank Ribery, who's, you know, not black or he's not uh, Arab, has that kind of football in him because he was never put in a, what they call a centre de formation, an academy. And he is from, from the Bonnier, from the suburb. So I think that that did have a big effect on Zidane and, and how it informed his, his style of play. You know, one way in which you can view that team, of course, it was a kind of multi-ethnic team. This was the Black Gombe. But another way you can see them, whatever their backgrounds were, these were all the sons of the sort of working class and lower middle class 
people in France of all origins who built France in the, in the period of the Temps Glorieuse, you know, the 30 years of rebuilding after the war. So these were, in a way, the last of a generation of vaguely working class footballers. His story is, is, is really the story of North Africans in Europe. His father went to France in the 1950s uh, as a labor. If you have Algerians that go to France, they went in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And they all went to go work on fa in factories. Zidane could have been any other North African kid. And he was born, again, in the suburbs, really in the low-income areas. And he just ended up making it. France had a new son, and his name was Zizou. He had the story, he had the look, but most importantly, he had the game. Placing his talent in the heart of France's golden generation was a perfect match. They won the 1998 World Cup, and two summers later, confirmed their supremacy at Euro 2000, where they reached the final against Italy. That final is like a, is like a wound already open. That's Emanuele Giulianelli. Italian football journalist and author. When asked about the Euro 2000 final between France and Italy, the pain was still there almost two decades later. He recalls Sylvain Wiltord's equaliser and why Italy couldn't recover in extra time. We were already in the second half and it was 1-0 for us. When the, um, the 90th minute was passed, we had only to keep the ball and Italy had the ball. The one who lost the ball, I remember well, was Vincenzo Montella. The, the referee is already with the whistle in his mouth. And then we took a goal. That goal, I think, cutted our legs and gave to France the strength to, to win a match that I am sure in their hearts they have felt to have lost. With that strength, France beat Italy in the most heartbreaking fashion possible. David Trezeguet's golden goal. Deschamps, Zidane, little touch to Henri. Perez got it for France. And it's Perez. Trezeguet is waiting in the centre. Trezeguet! ever to do it that way round. It's the golden goal. This is Perez going for the line and in the middle is the substitute, Trezeguet, who ironically, Mark, is about to join an Italian club. Well, it was just brilliant by Perez. He picks out Trezeguet, step back for him. Perfect balance, perfect poise. France have won it. That France was a very big team. In many ways, they were similar in 1998 and the team of the 2000s. Zinedine Zidane was one of the most talented players in the team, even if the team had got even other important and talented players. For example, I want to mention Yuri Jorkev, another player full of fantasy. The leader of the midfield was Patrick Vieira. They had uh, Candela and Lizarzu. They had Marcel Desailly on the back. I think a very nice team. Robert Pires, Thierry Henry, Turam, Leboeuf, Carambo. It was a very good team. Of course, the, the most important protagonist was Zinedine Zidane, without any doubt, I think. Winning back-to-back -back major tournaments with France solidified Zidane as his nation's hero and elevated him to another level of superstardom in the game. His technique and his footballing prowess made him the gold standard of central midfielders in his era. And with Real Madrid embarking on their Galacticos project, Zidane was an ideal candidate. In 2001, one summer after breaking the world transfer record for Luis Figo, Real Madrid president Florentino Perez made Zidane the world's most expensive footballer, buying him from Juventus for 77.5 million euros, breaking Figo's previous price by 15.5 million. There was no context for that. That was like the Neymar transfer this summer, only maybe even you could say more so. Um, I don't know what it broke the previous record by, but it felt like uh, they've spent 15 million pounds on a footballer. What What is happening? It was a really surreal. But of course, 
if it was going to be anyone, it made sense that it was Zidane at that time. What increased more his price during the years that made this incredible amount in the 2001 has been more what he has done with the, the France national team than what he has done with Juventus. His real masterpiece was to bring France, the France national team, higher level that they have never reached in their history because they were able in two seasons to win the World Cup and the European Cup. And in that team, he represented really the symbol of that team, the really the iconic player of the team. I mean, in Juventus, he had to share in the perspective of, of the supporters, of the media, of the, of the newspapers. They saw more Del Piero, the symbol of Juventus. In France, he was more seen like the number one, the top player. But what I want to stress is that the price so high was made more by what he reached with the French national team than what he reached with Juventus. Making a world record move one season before the 2002 World Cup, Zidane took a risk, but he didn't disappoint. And on club football's biggest stage at the 2002 Champions League final against Bayer Leverkusen, the French improved why Real Madrid spent all that money. That's a good ball for Roberto Carlos. Hooked into the penalty area towards Zidane. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Real Madrid come alive with a breathtaking goal. Scored by Zinedine Zidane. Solari and Roberto Carlos claim the assist. Wonderful goal. When it was up in the air, Clive, from uh, Roberto Carlos, he's passed him in a beautiful play. He's managed to lose his mark at his time. He's loved it. It's taken an eternity to come down and and you could almost have had bets on which corner he was going to hit it in. Look at that, that is magnificent technique. I've watched that goal from like a lot of different angles. It's, you know, so he got, he's gone for all that money, but the Galactico project is sort of perceived as a failure in general at that time because... They've not really become the dominant side in European football, really. And there is this sense of this is all a bit of a hodgepodge, isn't it? You can't just keep buying the most exciting, glamorous players in the world and hoping it all comes together. And then they did the thing that Real Madrid are designed to do, right? Mm. Just to win the Champions League. And the fact that it was Zidane that did it and he did it in such style. And it's like, okay, well, from their perspective, that's then justified all that money. Like, have hope would love that, right? <laughs> that one moment justified the, the transfer. It's kind of ultimate in uh, proving it on the big stage. The 2002 Champions League final was on May 15th. The 2002 World Cup, hosted by Japan and South Korea, was scheduled to start on May 31st. And that opening match was defending World Cup and European champions France against lowly Senegal. Two problems, though. In a friendly between the holders and co-host nation South Korea on May 26th, Zidane suffered a hamstring injury that ruled him out of the first two group stage matches. Zidane's absence was compounded by the fact that Robert Pires had suffered a cruciate ligament injury, ruling him out of the World Cup entirely. France were missing their two best creative midfielders, and on May 31st, Senegal made Le Bleu pay for those absences. The 94th minute now, Treasure Gay closing in, and the 2002 World Cup starts with a stunning result. Senegal have beaten the world champions in the opening game. The goal after half an hour by Pat Bubarjob. And this result will reverberate around world football, just as Cameroon's victory over Argentina did in the opening game of 1990. In the World Cup Stadium in Seoul, it's France nil, Senegal 1. 
Everyone else was happy about that. I was not happy about it because the European Championships in 2000 was like one of the best European Championships ever and France were absolutely incredible. They were so clearly the best team in the world and, you know, they just were electric and and before the 2002 World Cup, everyone was like, oh, well, obviously France is going to win. Look at their team. It's the best team in the world and they've just won two tournaments. But no, they were perfectly prepared to be super French about the whole thing. After the Senegal game, the nil-nil draw with Uruguay was like, you're watching this going, what what is happening here? Why why is this team not capable of scoring? But still, even then, you think, okay, they'll they'll sort it out on the final day. If France had beaten Denmark, they would have had a, a shot at going through. Just didn't come together. And I, I don't know how much of that was about the coach. I don't know how much of that was about... What I really think it was about was complacency, essentially. So despite losing to Senegal and drawing of Uruguay, France still had an opportunity to advance. Zidane missed the first two games, but then returned for duty against Denmark in the final group stage match. Unfortunately, France's hobbled star was unable to carry his nation to the knockout stages. I remember this. He definitely, he didn't look ready by the Denmark game. Yeah, I wonder if actually they were kind of assuming they'd, they would qualify without him. And it was one of those where you put your talisman in the squad because you assume he's going to be fit by the latter stages and the rest of the boys will get you through to the latter stages. But they did not do that. France finished the 2002 World Cup with no goals and just one point. But many understood that with Zidane injured and other key pieces, either unavailable or aged, the French had excuses for their performances. Fully recovered from his injury, Zidane won La Liga with Real Madrid the next season and the 2003 FIFA World Player of the Year award. At the 2004 European Championship, France were upset 1-0 in the quarterfinals by eventual champions Greece. And the French national team saw a mass retirement of the generation who won the 1998 World Cup and Euro 2000. Joining Le Boeuf, Djokaev, Cameron Burr and Petit, who retired after the 2002 World Cup, Corb Makaleli, Lilian Thuram, Marcel Desai, Vicente Lizarazu and Zinedine Zidane all retired from international duty after Euro 2004. It seemed the end of France's golden era had come. Zidane announced on his website on August 2004, It's the end of my international career with the French team. It's the time. It's my time. This is the end of a story. It's important to know when your time to go has come. Some players did it in 2000 and in 2002. Others like me are doing it now. But eccentric Le Bleu manager Raymond Domenech, who was struggling to qualify for the 2006 World Cup hosted by Germany, pleaded with Makalele, Thoram and Zidane to come out of retirement. The trio eventually accepted. Almost one year after retiring from the French national team, Zidane made another announcement on his website. I have decided to make a comeback and play for France one year after I categorically stated I would never play again. For the very first time in my life, I have decided to go back on my word, which is very important for me. When I made the decision to retire, I was very serious. Today, I have made the same decision, but in reverse. Like, what is a better genre of movie than rounding up the lads for one more job? Like, that is the best genre of movie. And he did it in real life with some of the best footballers France ever produced. And oh, does, how does the story end like it did? It's all there. All the ingredients are there, except for one last final bit. Domination's rescue plan worked, and the French qualified with help from their veteran reinforcements. But unlike 1998 and 2002, France weren't favourites at the 2006 World Cup. After drawing Switzerland and South Korea, France had to beat Togo in their final group stage match to be sure of advancing. France defeated Togo 2-0 with goals from Patrick Vieira and Thierry Henry, and they advanced in knockout stage by one point over South Korea. In the round of 16, France found themselves 1-0 down against Spain, but they fought back. 
Patrick Vieira assisted Frank Ribery for the equaliser and then scored the go-ahead goal from a Zidane free kick. Zidane scored an emphatic third and France advanced to the quarterfinals to face Brazil. In that quarterfinal, Zidane produced a masterclass. The greatest individual performance I've ever, I've ever seen in my life is Zidane against Brazil, quarterfinal 06. And that's Have Hope. Creative YouTube's Have Hope Football Hut and one third of the Talking Tactics podcast. Because that that's the only time I've ever seen one man defeat an entire team. Remember, Brazil were the favourites overwhelming favorites going into that world cup so what he did that puts him into like godlike status you can't hyperbolize that performance it's impossible because very rarely has football ever been played that well especially not on the stage of ultimate pressure really he, he could do no wrong that game and i remember ronaldinho in 2006 was the bee's knees and, and i was just really hoping that zidane would play well and everything he touched turned to gold there's a sequence, if, if anybody's listening to this and they have the time or the patience, do type in Zidane vs. Brazil in 2006 on YouTube and watch one of those match compilations. There is a sequence in the second half where Zidane plays a give-and-go, I think it was with Makalele, and he's coming towards the right side of the pitch. And he signals uh, to Willy Sagnol to make a run down the right, and Willy Sagnol does. But Ronaldinho, who's playing left midfield, tracks the run. And so what Zidane does, it's, it's really ingenious. It's one of the, <laughs> the moments where I really, my jaw just dropped. What Zidane did was he turned. And when he turned, Ronaldinho thought, okay, he doesn't want Sanyol to make the run anymore. Ronaldinho stopped tracking the run. But Sanyol kept kept running. And Zidane, just maybe a split second later, turned again and played the perfect ball to Willy Sanyol. A lovely play from Zidane again. Gets it back from Mark Lely. Just let the ball to him. Now brings Sanyol sweeping forward with a perfect pass. Roberto Carlos is there. Absolutely mesmeric play by Zinedine Zidane. Yeah, I think we're seeing one of the finest exhibitions of what I would call old-fashioned inside forward play. Passing, controlling, pulling all the strings. The only reason Zidane turned there was to make Ronaldinho think that he no longer wanted to play that pass. And it was really a, an example of him thinking two or three steps ahead of the opposition. And not just any oppos opposition, it was Ronaldinho, who at the time was the best player in the world. Such an ingenious sequence of play. And then again, another one in that match that I just thought of that comes to mind would be when he did a roulette on Zé Roberto, and it was the same thing. He received the pass, and it seems like he hit it too far ahead of him. It was a heavy touch. But Zinedine Zidane, this is one of the players that maybe had one of the best first touches in, in football history. Kaka let it run. Ronaldinho didn't realize where it was heading. Zidane just shows it to Gilberto Silva and then pirouettes away from him. Please don't give up the game. And he, the heavy touch is on purpose. It's to sell to Zé Roberto that he maybe lost it. But he, the distance that he hit it was perfect so that he could pull off the roulette. And that was also in the second half. So if anybody has a chance, do YouTube that and, and look out for those sequences just to see how far ahead Zidane was thinking. Looking back at the quarterfinal, it doesn't appear that special. Zidane had an assist and France won 1-0. But if you saw the game live, the recollections make perfect sense. Zidane was otherworldly. You know, I talk about and write about and think about football as part of my job and I kind of break stuff down and analyse it and all that kind of stuff. But this is just like, you just want to shout, look at him, look at what he's doing. Look, look at this man who has transcended the game. Like this man has hit some mythical, mystical zone that's only accessible to those who please the ancient masters. You know, it's it's just, ah, oh, it was a staggering, staggering, staggering performance. That performance was like, yeah, this guy has not entered that special echelon of unique play. That's how he became a horseman for for me. <laughs> was 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 that game? I was like, yeah, I've never seen any, anybody do anything like like this before. In the semi final, France played Portugal. Zidane was again superb, scoring the game's only goal from the penalty spot. 
In the round of 16, the quarterfinals and the semi-finals, France scored five goals, with Zidane playing a hand in four of them. He had carried his nation from perhaps missing the tournament entirely to the pinnacle of the World Cup final. It was known beforehand that Zidane's last competitive match would be in the 2006 World Cup. He'd already said goodbye to the Bernabeu in Madrid, and each knockout game was potentially his last game as a professional. So the 2006 World Cup final seemed like the perfect ending to an amazing career. You are looking live at Olympic Stadium in Berlin, where TV cameras will beam this World Cup final between France and Italy to one billion viewers. You are looking at Zinedine Zidane, the French idol who leads his team out onto the pitch. And now you are looking at the Italian side, and they are led by their peerless goalkeeper, Buffon, who will try to stop Zidane and the French attack here today. The world's game is waiting to crown a new champion. In the game's early stages, Italy couldn't handle the French attack. In the fifth minute, Italian centre-back Marco Materazzi made a costly error. There goes uh, Henri back in action. This is Maluda. Look at this here for drama. Zinedine Zidane having scored the winning penalty against Portugal. Buffon must remember which side he put it. The goalkeeper's right, the left as we look. Does Zidane change his mind? A war of nerves here between one of the world's great players and one of the world's best goalkeepers. Emanuele describing how Italian supporters felt in the moments before Zidane's penalty. <sighs> Another air take, but <laughs> when you see... Zinedine Zidane going close to the spot to kick a penalty, you think that uh, you are 1-0 for the opponents. Zinedine Zidane, especially for Italian supporters who knew very well him because he has played in Italy five years, we have always considered him uh, a player very calm, never nervous, so he was the perfect penalty kicker. whether the penalty was cool enough for you. Oh, dear me. Jacques was happy anyway. One up to Chirac, one up to France. And Zidane makes his mark in the first six minutes. Twelve minutes after fouling Florian Maluda and conceding Zidane's Panenka penalty, the towering Materazzi redeemed himself from an Andre Perla corner kick. Materazzi climbing! doesn't he? Great corner as well. He's so tall, but he adds to the leap as well. It's, he's made amends. You've said it. Marco Materazzi, once of Everton, now a goal scorer in the World Cup final, having conceded the penalty at the other end. It's 1-1 here in Berlin. Italian centre-forward Luca Toni struck the crossbar and scored an offside goal before half-time. The second half panned out as a well-regulated tactical affair without many clear-cut chances for either side. After 90 minutes and the score still 1-1, 30 minutes of extra time was necessary. Zidane came closest to putting France ahead in the 104th minute, but Buffon was equal to the Frenchman's bullet header. This is Zidane, opens the path again for Sanyo. Zidane! Oh, Buffon, 
And that's the ball in from Samuel as he just gets in behind Gattuso as well. France there, glimpsed the World Cup again, didn't they? And what a story that would have been if Zidane had headed the winning goal after 98. It's a corner on the far side to France. Zidane's next moment did come with his head, but not in the way anyone had expected. In the 108th minute, France's hero, France's superstar and France's talisman lost his cool. There's been an incident here. I think it's Zidane, Mark. I think the head may have gone in there. The referee oh. has gone across now with his hand in his pocket. He's been told about it. It's off. It's red. It's Zidane. The assistant referee, whether the fourth official saw something because of the delay, Dominic is sarcastically applauding the referee, belatedly, the man who sent off Wayne Rooney, is about to send off Zinedine Zidane. This is the incident. Matarazzi had an arm round Zidane there. Then they looked at each other. Well, I think words were obviously said, weren't they? Matarazzi said something. There it is. Oh, you can't excuse that. Zidane's career ends in disgrace. And Zidane goes. France will play the remainder with ten men. Well, the World Cup final explodes in the second period of extra time and Arazio Elizondo of Argentina dismisses Zidane Zidane for the head. I was, I was just, like, confused, shocked. I was like, what the hell happened? And it was crazy because of the, the tournaments he had, what he was doing, the story of, remember, this guy was retired. He came out of retirement, helped France qualify, and they were struggling from qualifying inspired them as an individual through the final without him they wouldn't have sniffed any game pass and knockout stages he was having such an incredible once in a lifetime tournament and for it to end like that i was like damn it that pissed me off so it's widely acknowledged that that is the first red card issued on a stage like that on the basis of video refereeing because no one saw it but the fourth official saw it on the replay screen told the ref what had happened the ref sends it down off right decision gets made but really, it's kind of outside the laws of the game. That part, obviously, is not the part I'm saying. I've never heard anyone say. I've heard lots of people say that. It's, it's widely held as a belief. One of the things that I think is interesting about that is, what if Zidane knew there was no way the referee was going to see what he did? So the cameras would capture it, sure, but he didn't have to worry about that. There could be retrospective punishment, but he didn't care about that. This was his last game ever. So what if he's like, well, I know 100% the referee does not see this, so I'm definitely not going to get sent off for doing it. This is a pet theory that you could never prove, and it might just be about adding to the mythological legend of Zidane. But I do think it's reasonable to suggest that he does this knowing where the referee is, knowing he's almost certainly going to get away with it. There was um, an episode in his previous career in Juventus. I'm sorry that I'm not able to tell you exactly which match it was. Of course, it was in a Champions League match. There was a moment in which, without any reason, he committed a very bad fall on one of his opponents and he, he took a red card. When I saw that episode against Materazzi, I don't know why for an unconscious process, of course. I have clearly in mind the image of that fall he made, uh, that Champions League match. And this can help, I think, to explain the, that incredible reaction against Marco Materazzi. Zidane, really calm, really cold, but maybe all this work to, to be calm. There are some little moments in which all this control fades. And he lost this control and he made these incredible reactions, I think. Maybe he wasn't so calm like he looked like. Maybe it was the work of a professional player himself to control his instincts, his bad instincts even. But 
sometimes all these controls on himself can fail when you provoke this kind of player. So you know when you see Suarez bite um, Braslav Ivanovic, you know, you, you see Suarez's face and there's a moment where his face switches from the adult conscious mind is in control right now to the juvenile unformed part of my psyche is now running the show and I'm going to buy this man. And you, you watch it kind of frame by frame, you can see it. With Zidane's face, you don't see that transition. Now, partly, this is probably about Zidane's upbringing and the, the very solid wall of facial defense mechanisms that he would have had. So partly it's maybe just that you don't see it on his face. But it makes me a little tiny bit inclined to speculate there might have been something more deliberate about what Zidane did compared to what Suarez did, where Suarez is clearly riven by impulse. You know, he is taken over by something inside him. Zidane does not look like that, although we analyse it like that because that's the only explanation that makes sense. But you can't see it to the same extent. Sense off, Zidane walked past the World Cup trophy, his head hung low while removing a bandage from his wrist. He went down a flight of stairs into a tunnel somewhere into Berlin's Olympia Stadium and never graced the football pitch again. But there was still a World Cup final to finish. For the Italians, seeing the Frenchman's back was fantastic. But also, they had bigger things to worry about. When we saw him off on the pitch, even in that moment, everyone didn't want to go to the penalties. And Italians never want to go to the penalty because we have had so many bad experiences in our life, of course, until that moment. In that moment, everything went really great and when we scored the first two that was the crucial moment when Trezeguet went to kick his penalty and he failed it was like a, like a sort of revenge yes it was like in a moment he had given us what he had taken uh, some years before that was the moment i think the crucial moment when everyone understood that that time we could really win that cup David Trezeguet missed, and the Italians were perfect. All they needed was to make their fifth penalty, and Fabio Grosso delivered. It comes down to this. Fabio Grosso has the World Cup on his foot. He makes it! Italy, World Cup champions 2006! I was heartbroken. I was the only one going for, for I, I wasn't born or raised in Algeria, so I didn't really have that sort of inferiority complex or hatred towards France. So I was supporting France and, and the national team. And I watched the 2006 final here and I was the only one that was going for France. Everybody was supporting Zidane and hoped that he did well, but they did hope that Italy won. So I was heartbroken, but <laughs> everybody was sort of chuckling. They were saying, you know, I remember that after the match, we went off for ice cream and the, the guy serving us said that was as Algerian as it gets really was, was headbutting Materazzi, honestly. And everybody was having a good laugh because they were happy France, France lost. And they were also happy that Zidane had a, a wonderful World Cup, but they, they were also happy that he showed that Algerian side of him as well. In the final, Materazzi gave away a penalty, scored the equaliser, coaxed Zidane into a red card, dispatched his penalty in the shootout, and then lifted the trophy. He was the story of the 2006 World Cup final as much as Zidane. And nobody expected that, not even the Italians. Materazzi used two arms, I think. One we can call psychological this kind of threat and then physical because it was very physical was very tall was very difficult to move him when when he was uh, in the box and he was able to to use these two arms to build up 
an incredible career because trust me no one in italy have ever believed the career that he have had afterwards i was saying to myself that he must have said something as in forget zidane nobody reacts like that in a game of that magnitude unless he says something it's like to headbutt someone in the chest that's the most streets like thugged out move i can think of so literally afterwards i was after the shock i was like no Masterasis must have said something really deep for him to react like that. The leading theories are that he insulted Zidane's mother, or perhaps his sister. But whatever he did say, the Frenchman reacted to the abuse with a thunderous headbutt, perhaps sacrificing what should have been his and France's second World Cup victory. It really was a fairy tale return. He'd retired from international football. He returned. He played really well as that tournament progressed. So it was devastating to me. And it was devastating that it happened in that way. But of course, as we know now, it only added to his mystique, didn't it? It was a sort of extraordinary, almost mythical moment. And I was quite surprised at how much sympathy there was for him. You would think after ruining France's chances of winning a World Cup, the French would label Zidane as a disgrace. But even before Zidane offered his explanation, forgiveness was being offered. I was sad regarding Zidane's gesture because I know he was very unhappy about it. I'm sad for him. Apparently the Italian did something. He must have insulted him or said something very serious. That's why Zidane reacted accordingly. It's unusual for him to react like that. We all know Zidane. He's the coolest guy on the planet, as everyone says. It's a pity. As for Zidane's send-offs, it's a shame that it ends like that, but he is a human being. He must be the example for the youth and all, but I wasn't shocked. If the other player really pushed him around and annoyed him, there's no problem. Zidane headbutts a man in the chest when France were going to win the World Cup. Italy win the World Cup instead, and everyone in France is like, oh, this is fair enough. I know, but like, I think he said something about his mother. We have to let him do this. It's not okay. What is football is nothing if you are not a man, <laughs> you know. You know, they say about like actors who do like an indie movie for themselves and then one for you, one for them, right? You, you star in a big blockbuster, then you do some little indie movie. This was like one for them, one for him, you know, 1998 for them. 2006, he gets to headbutt someone. Interestingly, I was just at a, an academic conference in Britain, a French studies last week, and Claude Bolly, who uh, runs the Musée National du Sport, he was gave a general paper on French sport. Uh, and one of the things that he said that, that slightly surprised me, I must admit, he said, you know, there's almost a sort of cult of being the glorious loser as almost better than winning. You know, he said Americans and British people don't feel that way. So I think maybe there's something, something of that in it. France loves an anti-hero. This is kind of central to French cultural identity. So it's like, well, oh, fair enough. That's the kind of the nature of French society to an extent. Secondly, I do think it's got something to do with the fact that Zidane's already a hero. So he kind of enters this pantheon of he can do no wrong now. When he did let his country down, this was an act of tremendous petulance. And like you say, in, a, in America or England, the kind of cultural blowback of that would have been terrible. In a way, I'm really pleased that that wasn't the case in France, particularly with what Zidane represented about French culture and of all the countries in Western Europe, dealing with the nature of monoculture versus 
uh, how do you deal with the diaspora that you created yourselves? Like England just tends to go, oh, it's all fine. Everyone's welcome here. And then except secretly or not, we'd like you all to leave, please. Oh, you look a bit dark. Sorry. That kind of thing. This is the tragedy of the English response. Never talk about racism. Oh, now Brexit's happened. Oh, now the far right's on the rise again. Uh, this is all real bad. But in France, there's been a big public debate about, okay, are you French or are you Algerian? And Zidane represented a kind of, as far as is possible in these circumstances, he represented a kind of healthy, hopeful, optimistic outcome for that. And so in a way, I wonder whether there was some reluctance to crucify him for what he did based on what he represents in a kind of broad socio-political thing. But honestly, my take on it would be that that is second to... French people just love a ruck. The kind of poetic anti-hero is as valuable as the hero. Maybe also, though, it in some way showed a different side to Zidane. It, it rounded him as a person. The unwillingness to step forward and say political things was maybe a little bit outweighed. Obviously, that wasn't in a political context. It showed that he wanted to defend his honour. So showing that aggression and that willingness to defend his corner and defend his pride and honour just increased his, his prestige. The act of doing what he did did something to his legend that winning the World Cup a second of time wouldn't have done. It's not necessarily, it didn't make it better, but it did add this anti-heroic quality to it that it wouldn't have had otherwise. The 2006 World Cup final was played on a Sunday. That Wednesday, Zidane went on French television station Canal Plus and watching the footage explained to the world and more importantly to France his actions. Yeah, he's pulling my shirt and I tell him to stop pulling it and if he wants we can exchange shirts after the match. Then he starts saying very harsh words which he repeats several times. Words that can hurt more than actions. It's something that happened very quickly. These words, like I said, hurt me deeply. Zidane then details what Materazzi said to cause his reaction and offers something of an apology. Those were very personal things about my mother, my sister. These were very harsh words. You hear it once, you try to leave, and that's what I did. You hear it twice, and then the third time, you snap. I'm a man before anything, and some words are worse. I'd have preferred to be punched in the face than to hear these words. And I reacted. Of course, what I did is not something you should do, and I must say this strongly, especially when there were two or three billion people watching on TV and millions of kids who watched. I apologize and I say it strongly. Asked whether he regretted headbutting the Italian, Zidane was far less apologetic. I can't regret my gesture because if I regret my gesture, then it means he was right to say that. I can't do this. I can't say that. I apologize to all the kids and all the people who saw the gesture because this gesture is intolerable. But me regretting this gesture would mean he was right to say what he said. And no, he was not right to say what he said. Definitely not. I mean, in a way, I think what he's doing is apologizing to the people who he really hurt rather than the people whose chest he temporarily hurt, who were probably very glad they took one for the team. The thing about apologising is, who are you apologising to? You apologise to the people you've hurt, right? Which is your teammates and 
the people of France. So in that sense, I think it's kind of reasonable. But also, you know, it does display, like Zidane is obviously a profoundly stubborn man, as as we've we've kind of seen. He's, he's got a kind of steel in him. He believed, he genuinely believed it was the right thing to do from, as a man, which is, by the way, fundamentally ridiculous. The people of France agreed. When polled, 61% of them had already forgiven Zidane before his television interview. Not even headbutting a man on the world's biggest sporting stage could damage Zidane's reputation. The French had made up their minds on Zizou eight years prior, and nothing would change that. Zidane's legacy is unquestionably marred by its final chapter, but it was so loved and meant so much to the sport that just like the French, those who loved the game were still in love with him. There are two stages of the Zidane career. That's before his retirement or after his retirement. Before his retirement, he was an amazing player, amazing for Juventus, for Real, amazing for what he did, especially in that France in 1998. But the second part is what took him from being an amazing player to a legend. Because it's the psychology of a guy who's retired to come out of retirement and have a performance like that on the biggest stage is what says to me that, you know, this this, this guy is unlike anything. And I think it's the way he played the midfield position, as in he brought an artistry to it. There was grace, there was poise, there was understanding. And I think even at that World Cup again, if you watch the game, especially against Brazil, you just see every single time any French player had the ball, they were looking for Zidane. Every single time they're like, boom, where's, where's Zidane? Because they knew that. Give it to him, he will know what to do with the ball. To have that on the pitch, it elevates everybody because you know that. Don't worry, as long as we give it to him, everything will, will, will be fine. He will know what to do with it. I gave it to him in any position, he will know what, what, what to do with it. That's why, yeah, I respect Iniesta, I respect Javi, and Pierre is my guy. Zidane was just on a whole other plateau, psychologically. His football just psychologically was on a whole other plateau. Even Algerians, who wrestled with decades of French colonization and oppression when seeing one of their own play for France, still have an appreciation and reverence to a point for Zidane. Look, here he's he's accepted. He's He really is accepted, despite the fact that he played for France and he never played for Algeria. Like Samir Nazrin, Karim Benzema are also Algerians of French origin, but they're really nothing to, to nobody. But when Zidane came in 2006 to Algeria, <laughs> it was like maybe, it was like Beatlemania in Algiers, really. The president came and welcomed him and his father. Even now, as a if I look through my window, I can see uh, an Orido billboard, which would have Zidane's face on it. So he really is accepted here in Algeria, but he doesn't really have a, a footballing legacy for some reason. It's a, it's a really weird position. He does a lot of charitable work and, and things of the nature. But if you ask anybody, they prefer Mahrez or Zidane they're here, they're, they'll tell you Mahrez because he played for Algeria. Zidane played in Italy for half a decade and won Serie A twice. But when asked which two Italians remember more, his Juventus career or the 2006 World Cup final, it made Emanuele laugh. <laughs> of course, for the World Cup, for the... For all the joy, for all the incredible moments we lived in Italy, and he was able to help us to <laughs> to live that moment. Without him, maybe I don't know if we have uh, have been able to to live moment like this. Uh, yes, just to just to to joke, but I don't know what would have happened if if Zinedine Zidane would have remained on the pitch for all the match without without that red card. I don't know. And that's the thing; no one knows. The table was set and everything was in place for Zidane to lift the second World Cup trophy. But a moment of madness, he threw it all away. Zidane, known for his mesmerizing skill, his sublime technique, the ingenious roulettes, and his almost regal nature with the ball at his feet, was always playing against two opponents. 
One opponent wore different coloured shirts. More times than not, they were simple to deal with. Zidane could simply dance away from them using his supreme footballing acumen to navigate whatever trouble they presented. But no amount of roulettes, no number of clever tricks, nor insightful passes could eliminate the second opponent. It was always there, waiting for someone or something to go wrong. Zidane rose from street football to superstardom, becoming a global icon from his two-headed goals that won France the 1998 World Cup. But all the while, he battled keeping quiet and inner aggression that helped fuel his ascent from the Marseille suburb of La Castellane to the heights of Real Madrid. And in the 2006 World Cup final, in his last ever professional game, more so than any Italian defender, even more than Marco Materazzi's pointed words, it was Zidane's second opponent, his own temperament, that got the better of him. 2006 was incredible. It was a kind of moment which transcended football and, and spoke to the kind of foibles of our shared humanity and, and the fact that we've all got work to do on ourselves. You know, even when we're on the precipice of greatness, we have the capacity to self-sabotage and throw that away. So be on your guard against that in yourself because it will come to the surface and you might headbutt someone instead of winning the World Cup. Thanks for listening to this Talking Tactics special. If you enjoyed it, please share it. A special thanks to all our guests and everyone else who helped us make this. Your help and time was very much appreciated. Remember, Talking Tactics drops every Tuesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and SoundCloud at Talking Tactics. Podcast Network.